Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, um, welcome to this session of um, the Sydney Writers' Festival. It's so great to be here. Um, we would like to first acknowledge the Gadawal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land, and pay our respects to the elders past and present and to any Aboriginal and Torres, uh, Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. So, welcome. Um, so, my name is Jane Harper. I'm an Australian author of five Australian mystery novels. Um, the first one, my first one was The Dry. Most recently, um, my latest book was Exiles. And I'm so happy to be here talking to Benjamin Stevenson, who is a fabulous Australian crime writer as well, of three books, Green Lights, Either Side of Midnight, and most recently, um, the wonderfully titled Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. So we could please make Ben very welcome. Thanks. Um, so this session is called um, My Favourite's Favourite, and I was asked to do this session, um, and the festival asked me who I wanted to talk to, and the, um, the only person I put forward was Ben. And the, you know, I could have honestly picked a lot of people in terms of books I like, because there's so many books I really enjoy. Um, but I wanted to pick Ben specifically because Ben, I'm going to ask you to tell, talk about your books in your own words in a minute, but Ben wrote two really great, successful, very traditional crime novels. And then with his third book, um, which I'm sure many of you have read, he absolutely kind of took this unbelievable kind of leap of faith and did something so fresh and exciting. And I just really feel, Ben, you were like one of the most kind of fascinating and creative authors working today, because it's so unusual, I think, to pick up a book. You know, in my whole life, I can think of maybe, count on, on two hands, the amount of books I've picked up and been genuinely, like, surprised and excited and kind of just transported by something that feels so fresh and original. And it really doesn't happen very often. But for me, Ben, it absolutely happened with your book. And so I just wondered if you could just make, get us all up to speed, if you could just tell us in your own words a little bit about your, your three novels. Yeah, totally. Once I recover from the compliment, <laughs> that was very nice. Um, so basically, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone is uh, about a family reunion at a ski resort, and they get trapped by a snowstorm, uh, and there is a serial killer that starts picking them off one by one. It's sort of a classic golden age throwback to Agatha Christie. But the problem with this family is that everyone in that family has killed someone. So in a family of killers, how do they find out who the murderer is? Um, and I just really wanted to write a, a classic golden age sort of throwback, a bit of fun. I just wanted it to feel fun and enjoyable and because I've been writing, as you said, those traditional crime books that were quite gritty. My second one in particular was quite gritty. I got a Goodreads review that gave me one star and said, this guy needs a mental health review. And I thought, <laughs> I'm going to spark it up a bit for my next book and have a bit of fun. And that's why I reached back to the classics. And I wanted to ask you, really, because I think you cannot underestimate how hard it is, I think, to take a risk in writing sometimes professionally. Like, I sometimes have, like, kind of an idea within a book or something that I feel you know, you kind of feel like, look, I think, this, I think it's going to work. I can kind of see the end result. I can see this sort of paying off. But it it's honestly feels to me a little bit sometimes like that kind of free-falling sensation. It's really, it's really difficult. And I, and I really um, so admire the way you had just absolutely kind of left it all on the field with this book, you know, and to do something so unusual. And I'm just wondering if, what your... Like, what was your thought process around this? Like, did you... Did you have this idea for a while or was it something that kind of 
came to you as your third book idea or? Well, there were lots of different pieces of it that sort of came together in that, but you're exactly right about the risk-taking. For this book, what I wanted to do was, in a practical sense, I was writing at the start of the pandemic, right? And, uh, you know, I was thinking, what is is book publishing going to look like? What is my writing career going to look like, you know, uh, in a a very sort of overarching sort of thought process about what was happening in the world? And, you know, everybody would have thought, what's my job going to be, you know, in a couple of years as the world was changing? And so what I came out of that with was the perspective that I'm going to write a book like I might not write another one, just in a very positive way, but I'm going to take all of those ideas that I've had through my entire life that I've thought, this is too risky, I don't think I can pull it off, it's a great idea, but the amount of effort I'll have to put into it to make it work, I don't think I can have it. And those ideas go into a drawer in every writer's mind and we don't feel like we can conquer them and we don't feel like we can do it. And I was sort of coming out of a perspective of you know, do it like you're not going to do it again and then why not try all these difficult ideas? And those ideas include things like giving away the page numbers on where all the deaths happen in the book because in the first chapter he spoils the entire novel and then he works backwards from it. And that was an idea I'd never thought I could pull off and I'd always wanted to do. The title, everyone in my family killed someone. I had no plot but I'd come up with the title a while ago and I thought, (laughs) you know, it makes you sound like a lazy writer but you come up with a really good idea and you think... That's so hard, you know, and and it goes in the drawer. And so I wanted to go into that drawer and bring all them out and take those risks because for me, in that perspective, I I just didn't feel like I was risking risking stuff. I was I was open to 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 failing with it because I wanted to be as ambitious as I could be. And then the other half of everyone in my family has killed someone is the sort of the lighter tone that I brought to it. And I've been a stand-up comedian for fifteen years, and I had written these crime books that I was really proud of, which didn't have much humour in them. And I sort of thought to myself, well, I'm leaving half of my quiver of arrows at the door by not using this skill set. Can I use this skill set in a crime novel and make it funny and light at the same time? Which, again, goes in the, you know, are there a lot of books like that? Not really, you know, can I pull it off? Is it too risky in that drawer? So once I pulled all those things out of the drawer, then that's how the how the book sort of birthed itself. And do you think you could have, because you've written this book as your debut novel? No, definitely not. I'm, uh, I think there's so much in it about structure and writing and understanding how stories are put together that I don't think I could have pulled it off if I'd have tried it on my first try. I think it would have come off as smarmy and annoying if I'd have done it without a couple of books in the canon. Yeah, because I think I think I think that's quite interesting in terms of when to take risks within your, I guess your kind of career. Ideal if you kind of are lucky enough to have one, um, because I think sometimes um, the you know, the idea and the execution are, are two different parts of the creative process, and sometimes they get a little bit confused. But you know, does does um, you know I find myself sometimes I have ideas that then for whatever reason you know you can't it's not the right time to execute them. I mean, for me, sometimes it's about the research involved. Like, it's just the research is just too much for, you know, where I am with my children, the age they are, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, for um, aspiring authors as well, sometimes there is like this, you you have this idea, but it doesn't, um, you maybe don't have the skills or the confidence to pull it off. But then I also think life is short and writing a book is a really big undertaking and I, I kind of come back to seeing like maybe you, you should just write the book that you feel passionate about. And I'm just wondering where you, having kind of, you know, you know, kind of 
change, change horses on your third one? Like where you fall on that? Is it, you know, do you follow your dreams at all costs or is it worth waiting until maybe you are a bit more confident? I think it's a bit of both. I think that you have to build the skills with which to achieve what you're trying to meet those goals that you have. And the, and the good example of that is, like I said, I do comedy and in that we play music. And if I sort of have an idea for a song but I'm not good enough at the piano on that, then I've got to increase the piano skill to get to be able to write the song that I want, for example. And I think that's very important. Um, but I think a key bit to this book was sort of... Um, you have a certain energy on your first book, right? A certain sort of uh, a, a certain ambition and and excitedness about what you can do, um, and I think that's that's a great way to write a book. And I tried to sort of dip back into that when I was doing this. But the other thing with this book is, especially because if you're trying to take risks and you're trying to be, um, you know, sort of a little bit funny or a little bit quirky, uh, I think it goes the other way, and I think that experience and self-doubt gives you as much sort of rationale in the middle of it to sort of restrain yourself. Because if you write particularly uh, a comic scene in a crime novel and you come away thinking, I'm the greatest, this is hilarious, I'm the best, then it's never going to be as good as it can be. You have to be able to sort of self-edit yourself and be like, wow, you really blew it on that sentence. You know, you've got to fix that and fix that and fix that. And I think that helps you achieve that sort of ambitious kind of side of it. So the ability to sort of say to yourself, I think a better way of putting it is when you write your first book, everybody writes their first book and thinks, wow, I'm a genius. <laughs> and the ability to not think that allows you to create, you know, really something special and unique. Yeah, I actually agree. I think the more with every book you learn something new and I think you kind of... Um, in a way, it's, that's great, but it also is a little bit of a curse sometimes as well in that you, you can kind of see problems before they happen, things that I would kind of just blindly like wander into and I'd maybe solve it later down the track because I wouldn't know it was going to be a problem. Now I can kind of see the problems, yeah. you know, coming at me from like miles away and it, and it does sort of force you to address them, I think, a little bit earlier. Do you do what I do, which is you see a problem coming in the manuscript and you just keep going towards it and you're like, it's coming, it's coming, I know it's coming, and then it happens... And you're like, I'm just going to bluster through it and I'm going to hand it to my publisher and they're not going to notice. And then immediately <laughs> they say, that bit is so dud. And you're like, damn it, they saw it immediately. They always get you. Speaking of publishers, I wanted to ask you a bit about um, how to, in terms of if you have an idea that's a bit quirky and a bit unusual, um, I guess how, how do you actually sort of go about having that conversation? I mean, you know, I guess you would have had a relationship already with your publishers, but if you're kind of you know, um, say for anybody out there who's got their own little quirky idea and, you know, have an opportunity to pitch it and things. I mean, do you, do, you, do you play up the quirkiness? Like, do you lead into it? Or do you tend to sort of play it down a bit and, like, let it speak for itself in the finished, the finished manuscript, do you think? Yeah, I downplay it hard yeah, okay. because the worst thing you can do to your publisher is scare the marketing team with a word like postmodernism, right? <laughs> they will just think, well, what's he doing? Um, but... On the other hand, I have an incredibly trusting publishing team and they have a lot of faith that I will give them something good at the end of the day, which I think is the most important part. And I'm a very sort of reclusive writer. I sort of go, well, here's the first 50 pages and it's going to, especially this book, here's the first 50 pages. It's going to seem bizarre. Um, I just want to know if I'm sort of on the right track and then I just need you to trust me and nine months later I'll come back with a book. And that's, you've got to back yourself 
to be able to do that or to be able to fail on doing that as well. You've got to have that sort of um, sort of that self-acceptance. But they're very trusting and I say things like, well, the page numbers are a great example. That was in the first sample I sent over to Penguin and then Bev, my publisher there, she said, this is great. Um, what's this page number thing? And I said, just trust me, I'm going to go away for nine months and when, it, when you come back, it's going to work. Because a lot of the ideas that I have, particularly in this book and in the next one, they only work when the book is complete, when the book is whole. So again, that's that sort of destral thing that it's, 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 it seems challenging and difficult. And you're only going to know if you've pulled it off when you type the final sentence of the book. Um, and so a lot of them, it's, it's trial and error and, and, and a huge amount of trust from, from the publishers. And did you waver at any stage? Were you, were you thinking, oh my God, like, you know, it's not going to work, basically? Yeah, I do that on every book, though, whether I'm taking yeah. risks or not, though. Um, yeah, you know, you think the thing about reading a mystery um, and the same thing happens with, with, with comedy um, in the book is that if you read something a hundred times, you see the bones of it too much. So jokes aren't funny. You'll know this. Every clue you think is highlighted in the book. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this mystery is so obvious. But it's only because you wrote it and you know the bones. So every time you're going through it and you're trying to make it sort of work, you're sort of thinking about it. And I was also very aware that Ernest's voice has sort of light touch and, and sort of um, a touch that's not in a lot of crime fiction. And so I was very aware of that and what I was doing and I, I was um, trepidatious about whether people would connect with him. I hoped that they would and I think that I thought I'd done a good job, but right up until the day the book comes out, you still don't know, you never know. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, I thought that while going through this book. Yeah, I think it is really hard, actually. It's, it's, it's so hard to kind of appraise your own work, I think. Um, I mean, I think you write, like, the more you write, the more you kind of get that, that sense of, of self-awareness with it. But still, it, it, never, it never really work, works for you. The jokes don't work. The red herrings are so obvious. And, and that's kind of... Um, and you, I think you sort of reach a point where you, you can kind of logically tell if something's going to work. But it doesn't necessarily work on you. You have to sort of trust the readership. Um, but what point for you then did you think, you know, yes, okay, this has worked? When was that kind of moment for you? I think um, it was sort of, sort of maybe two months out from when the book came out. I think we sort of had the early reading copies out and about. And um, I think we got our first review and I think some things happened at London Book Fair where people liked it and then we were suddenly talking to people overseas about it and then I was like, oh, people like it, you know. People think that it's fun and and other people, uh, you know, want to jump on board and so then that sort of um, gave me a bit of validation that we were on the right track. Um, and then, you know, it's sort of, it's my third book so I thought I knew what publishing a book was like and then this one just it was a totally different experience and I'm like oh my god people are really liking it you know so it was it was a slow sort of burn from about three months out as more and more people read it and the feedback was consistent and rewarding and you think oh okay I've, I've done a good job here. And what was that like kind of having because I mean you've got so many um, like really big name international authors like endorse this book like backs it like a lot of people you know around the world have really really embraced it I mean what what has it been like for you that kind of what what has that experience been like for you seeing it go out there and just do so well? I mean, it's just great. It's just great that there's readers, you know, and and that they've that you're connecting with people. You know, you get emails from people in in all different countries in all different languages trying to express 
how they've enjoyed the book, um, which is my favourite part. I got an email from Spain yesterday and it said, I have eaten your book, which I assume <laughs> means I devoured it. <laughs> and just the way that everybody enjoys the book differently is really fun. Um, my, I think you know you've written a good book when your parents' friends start to read it genuinely, You're like right. it's not just pushed in. My dad's best friend is currently reading it um, and he's reading a chapter a day every time he goes to the shops. And I said, well, that's weird. Are you going to the library? And he said, no, I'm going to Big W and I'm reading a chapter a day. <laughs> and I'm like, I will give you a copy, man. <laughs> and he's like, no, I like it. He gets the coffee, takes it to the, I assume, the lounge chair section and he sits down and he reads a chapter a day. <laughs> and that kind of stuff, the fact that that kind of stuff happens to you is is super cool. And then, you know, uh, in terms of, um, you know, amazing writers that I look up to have sent me emails and, you know, I mean, you're on the cover of it, which is incredible. Um, you know, it's just, it's just so nice that people, people like it really. And they really do. Like, I love that book. Honestly, when I, that proof came through, I think I just finished like a, a draft of my own book and I was sort of, it takes me a while sometimes to get into books. You know, when I finished writing something, it's quite hard to then read something else. And, um, and it arrived kind of almost a day. And, and you know, I picked it up and just, like, so many people just couldn't put it down. And I just, I just loved it so much. And I'm so happy that you kind of, you know, that you've kind of given us this, like, great book. And you did take this amazing, amazing kind of risk and leap of faith with it. And I'm wondering, like, when you look back, you know, look back at that kind of decision and that, that sort of moment when you thought, you know, yeah, look, I'm, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to have a go. And, you know, everything's sort of happened since. Like, how do you feel about that now, looking, reflecting on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad I did. I think I could have continued writing the books I was writing exactly the way I was writing them reasonably well. I think I was good at it. Um, but I think that I grew as a writer and I wanted to sort of show that off and or, or, or build myself as a writer more than showing it off and that this book was the way to do it. And if I hadn't done this book, then um, then I wouldn't have grown as a writer through the lessons that I learned in this book. So I'm always looking to sort of do something new and interesting and exciting for me because if I'm interested and excited while I'm writing it, then hopefully that shows through in the freshness of the energy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just so glad I did it because just because of what it's allowed me to build and what it's allowed me to understand that, you know, you can just sort of make art for yourself and it's really nice that a lot of people have read it. But I wrote this book for me and I wrote it because I thought I would love a book like this. I love really audacious boundary-pushing books and books that play with genre and stuff. And um, I was like, I'm going to write that for me and that if you can be happy with that, even if nobody reads it, then I think that's valid as well. Um, but it's so genuine and uh, um, when you do it like that, that when people do connect with it, then they are connecting with you, you know. And so that that's a really nice part of it as well. One of the things I love so much about this book is that I think as an author, um, it's really made me genuinely reconsider my own kind of writing because I, I feel like you know, for when I when I first read it and I was telling people about it and I was saying this book is so great, like you've got to read it. It's so it's so unusual. It's like nothing, haven't read anything like this before. It's so kind of fresh and it's original and it's but it like but then it's got this kind of classic stuff that you'll love because it's you know it and it and and I was sort of saying to sort of people like it's it's so inspiring to see someone kind of try something outside of the box. And it and it has honestly made me then think, well if it's that inspiring 
one, be inspired by that, and what, what lessons can I take from that? And it's really made me kind of consider, like, what, what could be? Like, what could, you know, is this idea I have, is this really, like, the best, most, like, creative idea that I could possibly come up with? Or is there something, what, what if everything was on the table? And what if, you know, and I just think, you know, I'm kind of excited to see what's, you know, kind of other authors come up with on the back of you having maybe given a lot of us that kind of little push towards just being a bit brave, you know, with our writing. Yeah, well, I think everything is on the table whenever you write anything. And that's a really interesting perspective because I think that, you know, when The Dry came out in 2016, crime wasn't really published in Australia, right? And the door has opened really widely. And I had that same moment of self-assessment when I was sitting down to write this book and I was thinking, you know who's really good at landscape stuff? Jane Harper, Chris Hammer, Gary Disher. They're all really good at landscape stuff. So I'm going to set my book at the freaking snow because they're not there. They're in the red dust and I'll be in the snow. And so that was that was like a really conscious choice. I'm like, I'm going to do a snow book uh, because... I'm, I'm, you know, the genre is so good and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll craft my own little piece of the weather there. So, but everything is on the table and it always is on the table. It's, you know, that's the wonderful thing about writing books is we don't have, we don't have special effects budgets, we don't have filming schedules, timings, there's nothing that you can't put in a book if you can't imagine it. Um, and, yeah, so that's the way I view it. And I think books as well are so, um, you know, the beauty of being an author with your own book is that it, it can be exactly what you want. You know, you don't have a team of investors to please. You don't have to kind of co- collaborate with anybody you don't want to. My you know. publisher's just wringing their hands in the audience. <laughs> you do have a team of investors to please, yeah. mate. <laughs> Um, so, look, speaking of the actual writing of it, I wanted to ask you, because you touched on it a little bit earlier, some of the really kind of very kind of unusual writing techniques. This book is such a kind of meta kind of book within a book. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's actually very hard to describe. So, I'm going to let you kind of do the heavy work with that. But how did you um, – tell us a bit about how you approached the actual kind of structure of this yeah. This novel. So Ernest, the narrator, knows that he's in... He, he's a big fan of murder mysteries and when the murders start happening, he sort of knows that he's inside a classical murder mystery and he knows the rules of how it works. So he talks directly to the reader about their expectations of the book. And the reason I did that, it sort of sounds like a gimmick at the start, but it's absolutely a device for suspense. So my sort of thinking was, if I can tell you what's going to happen as Ernest does, and if I can refer to your thinking and your preconceptions as you're reading a book, um, how can I draw suspense out of that? Because I think that reading is so much more than the words on the page, it's the experience of the book. Um, And I wanted to try and get in the reader's head and understand how you were physically consuming the book in your hands. So at one point, Ernest says, well, this guy's not the killer, there's way too many pages left in the book, which is exactly what the reader will be thinking. But by pointing it out to the reader, the reader thinks, you're pointing this out to me because it is the killer. And then you have a double level of subtext. And the same with the page numbers, right? So Hitchcock has this great quote about suspense, which is that if two people are having dinner in a restaurant and a bomb under the table explodes, that's a surprise. But if you want suspense, you have to have them have dinner in the restaurant and just sit the camera on the bomb under the table. And that's suspense, and you just let the scene play. And I was very interested in that because I'm like, 
what's the difference between su surprise and suspense? And if I take away the surprise element, can I still build the suspense? So when Ernest says somebody dies on page 14 and you're on page 14 and you're reading down the page and you know somebody's about to die but nobody's died yet and then you know you've only got three sentences left until somebody <laughs> maybe dies and then they die on the very last word of the page and then it's a new chapter, you're like, oh, you know, like it's played with your expectations, um, which is hell for the typesetters yeah. because I had like, I'm like, this word must go on this page, otherwise the whole book is ruined. Um, but again, it's all a function of driving the expectations. Can I, can I try and anticipate? We all do this when we write mysteries, but Ernest does it more directly. Can I try and anticipate how the reader is feeling on a particular page when if I'm writing this without his self-reflection, I'd be trying to build a certain mood? But then can I anticipate that, call that out, subvert it, and then get my real intent across, which hopefully is even more um, more suspenseful. And in terms of the actual, um, you know, the 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 way you kind of approached um, approached. I mean, do you, did you plan it all out, or I mean, how with those red herrings and all those kind of suspense and those different elements? I mean, because you do give away so much, which is one of my favourite things, by the way, about it is the bit where. Which is actually one of my favourite things in all kind of in um, when an author has a confidence to say things like, um, you know, there's a bit where one of the characters runs out and like vomits, and you say normally in books like this that's a sign she's pregnant, but she's not pregnant. People can vomit for other reasons, and and that kind of that kind of level of self awareness and um and the way you sort of foreshadow things and say it's not. Yeah, this is how I solve it in the end. That was a great line. You know, so how do you, like, how do you um, work out, how did you work out like where to put those little teasers and, and, and make sure the whole thing worked overall? Yeah, um, I'll come back to that question because I have a side note about that vomiting paragraph is that somebody took a screenshot of it and posted it on Reddit, on a subreddit forum, which is called Men Writing Women. And it's a page in which they post screenshots of books in which men write women badly. And it's quite funny. I do, I recommend the subreddit highly. And they posted that passage from the book and somebody wrote the headline, um, this is how it's done, well done, you know, clappy emoji. Um, this is how men should write women because it calls out that, you know, pregnancy in books, in fiction is often a bit... Um, oddly presented by male writers. Anyway, there were like 100 comments and everyone's like, oh, yeah, cool, cool, cool. And then a week later, somebody posted it again and said, this is exactly how not to write women in fiction. <laughs> and 100 comments immediately. And then a week later, every week somebody posts it and it's either, it depends on whether the original person posting it says, I like this or I hate this. And then the internet goes, we hate this too. We like this too. <laughs> it was a real lesson in the internet just from that passage, um, which was great. But in terms of plotting it out... I think I sort of let myself, I sort of let Ernest speak as he goes. Um, so when he says things like this will be where I solve it or this kind of stuff will happen, I knew that that was going to happen and I would go forwards towards it. And I tried to do it in such a way that if you read the very first draft of it, it wouldn't all perfectly line up, but it would sort of conceptually work. So I wasn't too worried about making it really rigid, um, but it was all plotted out so that it made sense. And then I... I'm a very slow writer, I'm very methodical. I write down the page and that's it. So I don't write another sentence through a manuscript until I fix the whole manuscript. So when Ernest says, we walk past the library and that's where I'll solve the crime, if I counteracted that, contradicted that with anything else throughout the book, I would go back through the whole book and rewrite it so that it was always working up to the point where you read it to. 
And then I had an Excel spreadsheet which had, I think there were like 112 clues in this book and they were all in the Excel spreadsheet um, along with the page numbers so that I could keep up with it. Um, and then I left myself a little bit of flexibility because there's, you know, the book is true. Everyone in the family has killed someone. There's eight family members, so there's eight mysteries to solve plus the main one, so there's nine. Um, and I knew six of them when I started writing and I wanted to give myself the opportunity to know, to find the other two as they came through, and I will never do that again because it's so hard. Um, I will plot. <laughs> Did you, um, and how do you solve those, like when those bits that are hard, when you've got a bit of a, like a bottleneck or, um, you know, you're not quite sure, you know you need an answer, but you're not quite sure what it is. What do you, um, how, do you how do you tackle that? I sort of bluster through it and, and, well, you come up with the best solution that you can, even though you know it's not quite good enough, and then you just sort of sit with that and until that one until what you've done dissatisfies you enough that you know that you're going to have to rewrite it. And I think it's more just time and digesting. Um, but for me with this one, because I had, well, the eight mysteries to solve, you know, it's, it's, it's purposefully called everyone in my family has killed someone, not everyone has murdered someone. So I need to sort of decide who was a murderer, who was a killer. Um, I need to decide whether each death was servicing the plot or servicing a character arc. And one of the big breakthroughs I had with one of the ones that I hadn't solved and it wasn't working was, um, for those that have read it, Ernest's ex-wife. And I realised that that needed to be a character, a character arc, a death that spoke to an arc and not a death that spoke to the plot. And then once I unlocked that, then it sort of went like the dominoes. So I think a lot of the time it's just one thing just sort of clogs you up and you've just got to keep going around and around and look at it from different ways. And, you know, what do I need this scene to do for the book? What am I doing well and what is the book missing? And then you can sort of go from there. Yeah, I think sometimes it's okay to just kind of have like placeholders and, you know, you sort of you know, put them in, you think, I, I am going to come back and change this later, but this will do for now. And sometimes even, yeah, as you're writing and you're exposing that character to more scenes and, you know, you, you are kind of getting to learn a bit more about them. Some, yeah, ideally, that, that solution kind of presents itself. But I often think it's a bit like, um, uh, you know, I've said this before for anybody who's been sort of be like, it's a bit like going to the optometrist, you know, and they show you something like, which is better, this or this, you know, and then you pick one and they say, okay, well, which is better now, this or this, and you're constantly trying to refine it and find that slightly better, what is like the better solution. Um, for those of you who I think it's pretty, um, maybe obvious to, um, to you, but Ben is actually also an award-winning comedian. He is one half of the Stevenson experience and has toured internationally and um, won lots of awards. And I Award losing comedian. I don't think award I've ever losing. Won any. <laughs> really? Oh, you. I'm surprised to hear that. <laughs> yeah, there's this comic called Hannah Gadsby. Keeps winning them. I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah, she's very good. Your time is coming. Because um, I think one of the things in that I really loved about this book was it, it is it is so funny, and I think the um, the comedy, like, so we'll come on to um, Ernest, the main character, in a minute. But the, the comedy gels so well with, I think, the, the characters and what's happening, the, the slightly sort of um, kind of the, the whole kind of tongue-in-cheek meta feel of the book being kind of a bit classic crime, but this sort of um, fun take on it. And I'm really interested. Um, I don't do comedy at all in my books because I, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do it. And I mean, I'm curious how how do you put how do you put comedy in your books in a way that actually makes it work? 
it's so hard doing comedy in books because if you tip the line, especially in crime, then suddenly you're into farce, yeah. um, which is a perfectly valid genre, but it's not sort of what I'd set out to write. Um, I think I just wanted to sort of let myself try it and it's tricky because you need to make sure that the dramatic moments hold their own uh, and you can't undercut that with a joke every time. Um, but also making sure that the tone is consistent. And how I did it in this book is that I worked on two levels. So Ernest is the is the lightheartedness of the book, and that's because we're seeing things through Ernest's perspective. So Ernest can say whatever he wants, think whatever he wants, and you can get a pithy line or a witticism in, and then that builds the sort of comedy. But the plot is never funny. So any plot element always exists on its own as part of the mystery plot underneath Ernest's perspective. How Ernest is looking at it is fine um, and he can be humorous. But the way that I viewed it while writing is like nobody in this book is allowed to die by slipping on a banana peel. That would be tipping into farce. But Ernest is allowed to look at everything through his unique lens. And then it's a matter of crafting that unique lens so that it is genuinely funny, um, which is a real which is, you know, really challenging to do. Um, but also that it's not too disrespectful to the genre, you know. It's a very, uh, it gives a bit of a ribbing to Golden Age mysteries, but it's a really affectionate homage. And if you do too much, you've got it, then you tip it over as well. And certainly in the first um, draft, Ernest was a lot more wisecracking and then se several sensible editors helped helpfully pointed out um half his family's died in the last 50 pages could you have him reflect for one moment and <laughs> quit chatting away and I'm like yeah that's a good point so when I was writing the book actually and this is a uh, plotting question as well because I write this big synopsis and then I go through the plot and then I left myself little bits to find but mostly it's fairly rigid and I'm not much of a writer as I go uh and so I'm not much of a brainstormer or writing down but to help with Ernest's voice um, I had one post-it note on my laptop screen and that post-it note, it said, um, uh, make it colder because I wanted to do more with the weather and make it warmer because I wanted to make Ernest more genuine and empathetic. And also I think if you make somebody empathetic, then you have better pathos, then you have better comedy anyway. So it actually works. Mm, yeah, I mean... I think Ernest is such a great character and this is a good opportunity to talk a bit more about him because he is the um, he also recurs in your upcoming book. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, Ernest and also then his role in, in your forthcoming book. Sure. Uh, I mean, well, yeah, Ernest is a huge fan of mystery books and he has made a living writing how to write mystery books um, where he sort of sells them for a dollar a piece on Amazon, which is in the back of the book. And then I get emails saying, how do I buy your book right, on Amazon? Yeah, really? And I'm like, I have missed out on an income stream <laughs> yeah. here. I reckon I could have made like four bucks. Um, so he loves mysteries and then he finds himself in this mystery, but he's also sort of uh, tied up in his own family dramas. He's the black sheep of the family and he sort of throughout the first book comes to understand that family um, is sort of who you surround yourself with, not necessarily who you've got blood ties with. And that's sort of the theme of the first one, make it warmer. And then in the next book, it's in first person as well. So that's why he can talk to the reader and chat and say, I know what you're thinking and you're on this page and et cetera, because it's, it's his memoir. And in the second book, um, which is coming out at the end of the year, he's published this book. He's published the book called Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. And he's been invited to a writer's festival <laughs> to talk about the book. And the writer's festival is on the GAN, which is the train from Adelaide to Darwin. 
and there's six crime writers on the festival and they're all from different genres. There's the forensic crime writer, there's the blockbuster Scottish writer, there's the uh, legal thriller writer, there's the literary ponce, there's the, you know, there's everybody. And then one of them is murdered on the first night there. <laughs> and the other five decide, well, we write crime novels, we must be experts and able to solve the crime. And they all sort of turn to amateur sleuthing and try to piece the crime together. But the problem is that with five people on a train who know exactly how to plot out a murder, they also know how to get away with one. So he's got to figure out um, what happens there. And it's called Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. Um, That's a great title. Yeah. And is that in October? Yeah, October 17th. And, and it's, I've been, you know, it's finished, but I've just been in the green room with my ears open just in case there's anything to add from a writer's festival perspective. Um, and tell us about the, um, the train aspect, because that is such a fantastic idea for a setting for, yeah, like a book like this. I can, I can kind of already kind of see him in that setting. So tell, so you, you, you went on the train yourself, did you, for some research? And was it, did it give you, was it what you thought it would be and what you wanted it to be? Yeah, it was amazing. Um, did I take enough notes? Absolutely not. Um, as a tax deductible research expense, I highly recommend it. <laughs> um, it was really fantastic. I mean, and the staff were really into it. Once I told them I was writing a murder mystery, they were like, oh, let me show you where we'd keep a dead body and all this kind of <laughs> yeah. stuff. So he was like showing me this cabin and he's like, this is where the staff normally sleeps, but nobody wants to sleep here because we had to have a dead body in here a couple of months ago. And then, you know, I was asking him all these questions and he was like, you know, we were very lucky that they didn't think I was sort of planning something. Like, because I'm like, one of the things in the book is that there's no locks on the on the door of the GAN. There's no locks on any of the doors. And I was like, so who has locks? And, you know, can you go in and out of people's rooms? That's important for a murder mystery. And, uh, you know, the other version of that is you're hearing somebody on the train being like, where are your locked doors, mate? You know, <laughs> trying to blow this thing up. You know, so they were very, they were very generous. Uh, and the trip was really amazing and really informed it. And I think as a setting, um, I wanted to move it away from the snow um, and find a new place. Um, and the, a confined setting is very important for Ernest's books. I think he's got to be trapped somewhere because that's such a big element of the mysteries that he's sort of aping um, and being trapped on a train. I mean, there's obviously Murder on the Orient Express is, is very popular. Um, and to make it Australian and sort of have that sort of knowing nod to it, it was just too appealing to go past. The problem was when we went on the train, I had all this plotted out, I had this plot and I was about to start writing and then we went on it and I was like, oh, this is really small. Like, the, you know, that action scene won't work because you can't run past each other in the corridor or anything. So I had to replot a whole bunch of it because it was so different to what I expected, which I was like, oh, thank God I went on the damn thing. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> otherwise people would be like, this is odd. This doesn't work. I think um, the the settings like are so interesting in terms of they do that one particularly and uh, that kind of um, the isolation of like the snow you know just the snowbound kind of family um, they had that kind of throwback to that golden era classic crime novel. Do you think um, are there are there plenty of options? Do you think in the Australian space like landscape for more ideas like that, or is it a bit of a struggle to find ones that would fit in with with that kind of what you're trying to achieve there? Yeah, I think I've, I've been thinking about it for whatever comes next. And I think landscape to me, the reason I like the isolated setting um, is because your plot depends on your characters and what they can do to each other inside 
that sort of space. So it doesn't necessarily have to be sort of a landscape element that I have to sort of find, um, you know, the train handy, hotel handy, you know, um, but I'm sort of thinking broadly about, well, where else could you get locked um, and, and trying and making it different each time. Uh, so I don't think, I think you could do it with any setting. Um, I don't want to say any because I'm still deciding what it'll be and I don't want someone to come up to me in three years and say, you said your next book would be set here and it's not. Um, you can be cut off from the world anywhere. We could be, the, you know, the door could shut here and the roof could collapse and we could be trapped in here for five hours, you know. <laughs> you could live in a building in Surrey Hills that catches fire and, you know, like, you know, this, this stuff that you can sort of make people stuck in a place um, and then the key is to make sure that you have enough space in that sort of plotting to move your characters around and make it feel really fresh so they're not sitting in a room talking. Um, so in the train book, that was one of the things that was really great about going on the train. I was like, I can move, I need to move them around a lot and I need to uh, move them here and get them here. And I added some stuff that's not on the GAN. So there's now a smoking deck out the back because I wanted a scene where people are standing on the outside of the train having a chat and it's just a bit more interesting. And when I was on the train, I'm like, well, they can't have all the talks in this room where most of the people hang out. So I've got to manufacture where they go and how they go. Um, and yeah, I think you can do that anywhere. Um, it's just sort of plotting it out and building that space so that you can use it for your mystery. It's always got to serve the mystery. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, um, yes, I, I'm sure it'll be so, so beautiful. Um, but I wanted to, before we do that, I wanted to ask you about um, the TV series um, of Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, which has been optioned. So what can you tell us at this stage about that one? Um, not too much. I mean, we're making it with HBO and made-up stories and Endeavour content and made-up stories of the people um, that make Big Little Lies and, and The Dry, um, and they're amazing. And then, you know, HBO's been beavering away at it. Um, you might know this or you might feel differently about this, Jane, but um, I get called when there's something to tell me and not the other way around. So <laughs> that's how they sort of talk to me. So there's been lots of good news recently and um, we are slowly getting there, but I don't really know much more than that. Um, yeah. Do you know where where it'll be set? We've discussed both filming in here and moving it. Yeah. And I'm sort of okay with anything um, because I accept that the snowstorm in the book is an incredibly severe storm for the Australian New South Wales Alps. <laughs> and I accept that willing suspension of disbelief. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe there's a ski resort elsewhere that, that would sort of suit. Um, so I'm pretty open to wherever they want to do it. Yeah. Um, before we go to um, the audience questions, I wanted to ask you, in terms of your fourth book, what does, um, like, what does success look like for you now? Does this book have to do anything for you to feel like it's, it's done what you've done or is it just enough to kind of get it to a stage where you're happy with it? That's a really good question. I, I think I want... You always want everybody to think that... Um, they don't necessarily have to think that you're next book is better than your last. I think we all hope that our books improve as they go on. But what I would really love is that everybody feels like I'm not just doing the same thing again and again. And so if they can take away that it's been, it, if readers think it's fun and think that it's unique again and, and has built on the last book in a refreshing way, then I think I, I would count that as success. Yeah. 
Plus enormous sales and you absolutely, know, all that's the good right. Stuff, yeah, you know. worldwide acclaim. Yeah, for sure. Um, do we have any questions? Just wondered if your daily or weekly writing ritual changed writing uh, this book compared to the first two because you had to get into a different headspace. And with the new book, um, were you basing any of those crime writers on the train, perhaps on your co-host here <laughs> or authors you know? So I'll answer the easy question first. My writing ritual is all over the place. I write in hotels, on planes, um, wherever I can grab a spare hour because I sort of try and do a lot with my life and so I squeeze it in whenever I can. Um, being consistent and doing something every day so that Ernest's voice sort of stays up there was, is very important for me and very important for writing this book. The writing thing that has changed is that I can no longer write on planes because somebody leaned over to me a couple of months ago when I was finishing everyone in this train as a suspect and said, oh, are you writing a book? And I said, yes. And they said, oh, I'm reading this at the moment. They were holding everyone in my family has killed someone. <laughs> and I was writing the reveal of the new book and I'm like, mm, no, nah, you don't get to see that. So that's changed. And then in terms of basing it on people, no, it's all very archetypal. Um, Jane Harper is an in-universe character in the new book. She's referenced by Ernest as a writer that he likes. Which is so exciting, but can I just say? Not... I was thrilled. She doesn't die and she doesn't kill anyone. So, uh, so it sort of exists in the real world of, of writing. But, you know, it's, it's all the sort of archetypes. They're not based on anybody. Um, they're based on all the facets of my personality just blown out. Um, and I did have to say, I mean, there's other people in there. There's a publisher, there's an agent. And when I sent it off, I said, just so you know, these aren't you. Because <laughs> they're really, you know, it's a murder mystery. Nobody's nice to anybody. So um, not representative of the community. You mentioned that um, it was really painful for the typesetters to um, make certain words go on page 14 because certain people were going to die on page 14. How did you deal with that with the audiobook and on Kindle? Yeah, so uh, fantastic question, which I wish you'd asked me that before we ran into it about a month out from release. Um, so when I pitched this idea and I was doing it, I said, look, I know it's, it's ambitious and I'm going to take responsibility for the page numbers. I will look at it at every stage because it's not ever an editor's or a typesetter's fault if that goes wrong. It's my job to check it and make sure it's right. So I was very involved in that um, and that's how we did that. And then I rewrote it for the Kindle and the audio. So in the audio book, he talks about timestamps and he says the audiobook in the Kindle book, he talks about percentages. Um, and at one point, he calls you a cheapskate for buying the ebook as well. So <laughs> I think it's the only book that's been written in three formats literally f to talk to who's reading it. Um, but that, that was how I did it. You mentioned that you have a drawer for all of your ideas that you kind of put away. Is there a metaphorical trash bin that maybe it's an idea that won't actually work and, and you actually disregard it completely or do you actually hold on to the, all of those Totally, yeah. There's a metaphorical trash bin. I mean, the drawer is uh, metaphorical as well. It's all in my head. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. There's stuff I'll never write. 
that I want to write. Here's, here's a dorky thing about me. I freaking love time travel movies. And I'm like, I'm going to write a time travel book. And I'm never going to write a time travel book. But that's in the draw, you know. I'm not going to, just before I get questioned about it. Do you guys have one piece of advice each that you'd give to young Australians with aspirations to, you know, meet the same goals that you guys have achieved? I mean, I think for me, I, I think I said this in a different way slightly before, but you've got to write what you really love to read that you feel is not there for you. And that's the only way to write something really from the heart that's genuine and, and it will come across to your readers. And so if you're writing something, if your writing is with a certain goal to be read here or published here or whatever, then that's, that's a way to sort of structurally write a book and you can succeed. But the way to really succeed is to write the book that you would read and, and seek out and read what you love and figure out what people aren't doing that maybe you can bring to the table. Yeah, I think actually mine, mine was going to be very similar because I, I think it's really important to try and um, let go of the things you can't control, you know, because you, you're, you're not going to be able to control, you know, really whether you get a publisher or whether the book's well received or what happens to it. Um, you know, the only thing you can really control at this point is the manuscript itself and that that is completely within your control. And, you know, you, you're, you if you can kind of do your best to kind of put aside all those you know, there's fears about like what if and what if it doesn't get published and things and just try and really focus on um, making it like the, the best you possibly can and giving it the best possible shots to be the book you want it to be. Um, then even if, you know, even if nothing, it doesn't get picked up and nothing happens with it, as heartbreaking as that is, at least you will have, you'll achieve something that you, you wanted to achieve. You've written the book you wanted to write and you also have, have absolutely learned something from it and you will then be able to take all those lessons and you don't lose those lessons. You get to keep them and you get to take them and move them on to, you know, put them in maybe your next book, which hopefully would, would do what you wanted with it. Um, yeah, so that's... Yeah, totally. I'd like to know what is it about death that you both absolutely love writing about? <laughs> I think death in mystery fiction is a good way to examine characters' responses to it and how they sort of respond to it. Um, and I think it allows you to bring a lot of your characters out on the page. For me, though, for this book, one of the really comforting things about golden age classic mystery fiction is that it's about justice and it's sort of about moral comfort um, which you know the world's a bit topsy-turvy at the moment but Sherlock Holmes tracks down the killer and they go to jail you know Holmes is never gonna be uh, the corrupt that's never gonna be the twist in in a Holmes book or a Poirot book um, and so there's a certain moral comfort that the victim is probably going to be quite vile the killer is going to be even more vile just desserts will be served and we all go back to a nice stasis. Um, and that's the pleasure of those detective stories. So that's why, that's the function that death serves in my book is, is comfort, you know. Like it's, it's, it's got that sort of moral unambiguity about it, um, which is what I really enjoyed for this book. I think for me it's actually um, probably one of the least important parts of, of the book for for me, when I'm writing a novel, um, for me, the, the the death or the mystery or the crime or whatever is kind of the the opening at the start of the book is really just the catalyst for what happens next. Because the bit that really interests me is more the the kind of ripple effect of 
when something, you know, tragic has happened within a community or group of people, the effect that that has on all of those people. And a lot of that comes back to, I think, my journalism days when I kind of did a lot of stories where, you know, you see people whose lives have changed, um, yeah, for better sometimes or often for worse and, and the effect that that has on them. And it's always been that kind of... Um, that kind of quiet aftermath where people are reflecting on what life looks like now and how things have changed and maybe what they could or should have done differently is is sort of the yeah the aspect for me that I think the heart of the you know where the heart of the novel is. Hi there. I was just wondering if you had any manuscripts that didn't quite make it before you got out there and published. Yeah, yeah. Um, my first manuscript didn't get up. Um, it got me a conversation with a publisher that said, I think you can write and there's no way this is publishable. Um, <laughs> and then that gave me enough confidence to start the second book, which would become my first published book, um, Greenlight. And like Jane said before, it's all the lessons I learned putting that together. Um, but I would also add that one of the best things you can do for yourself as a writer is type the end on that first book because you've proven to yourself that you can do it, that you can run up that hill and that there it will end, which is something that writers feel when we're in the middle of a book. Like, will I ever get there? And sometimes the only thing that keeps you going is that, well, you know what? I've done it before and there is an end, you know? Um, and so I think it gives you that. But absolutely, yeah, that one, that one straight in the drawer will never be seen again. It's shocking. But um, I had fun writing it. Um, I learned a lot about the craft and it got me a conversation about, we'll come back to us when you've had another go. And then that, that sort of started me off. So it was super valuable. And I, I actually didn't, but I, what I did have um, was the benefit. I'd had 13 years of working in print journalism. So I'd been writing for my professional life every single day thousands and thousands and thousands of words to deadline about all kinds of things, about things I was interested in, things I wasn't interested in. So when I actually, and I'd been kind of harbouring this ambition to write a novel since I was a child. So when I actually then came to think, okay, I'm going to do it, I had the benefit of all this like technical experience, plus this kind of pent up, I think this sort of pent up energy, where it meant that at that time in my life, I was just kind of really like match fit to do it. You know, it, it was, it was, I had this sort of technical experience and the desire, and it kind of all came together in a perfect storm. But um, yeah, I think, you know, absolutely. I mean, I think everything you write kind of, you learn from it and you, you, you benefit from it. And a lot of that is, it's like any other skill, the more you practice it, the, the better you, you get. Um, ben, we need to finish in a second. I just wanted to ask you one um, kind of final thing because I'm so excited about your new book, Everyone in This Train is a Suspect. And I just wanted you to tell us, if you would, one of your favourite things about this book that you're looking forward to us all discovering in it. I think, um, I think there's a really great mystery at its core and one of the fun things, and this isn't a spoiler because Ernest lays it out, what happens in mystery books... Um, you know, there's word puzzles, there's anagrams, there's code breaking, and it's all for you to solve through the book as you go through. So those are all out there for the reader as they read, and Ernest, you know, he has his grand deduction, as you must in these, in these books, um, and he will solve it for you, but they're also all on the page for the, uh, the people who enjoy those kind of code breaking things. Um, to a higher degree than everyone in my family, which has a couple of anagrams, but this one has a couple of really fun ones that I'm looking forward to seeing if people figure them out or, or if I can pull one over. So I like the puzzles in this one a lot. 
Well, I can't wait. I'm sure we all can. Ben, it's been so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time today, and thank you all for coming along. Thank you. Give it up for Jane Harper. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.